A.E. Doubleback. And at long last, it's the Simon Grimm interview. Simon Grimm, or occasionally Simon Gotch, is a 20-year veteran of the biz, formerly of the Vaudevillains and WWEs, currently, as of the time we recorded this in early March, with MLW, competing on Daily Wrestling's Match Madness on YouTube, as well as Josh Barnett's Bloodsport. Find him on Twitter at Devious Journey, on Instagram at GotchStyleWWE, and buy his merch at ProWrestlingTees.com slash Simon Says. Uh, we talked to him for nearly two hours. If you want the complete interview, it's up in two parts on YouTube. He goes into way more depth about movies, wrestling history, and absolutely disgusting stories about wrestlers and promotions. Big promotions backstage. Uh, subscribe to us on YouTube and subscribe to us here. This podcast you're listening to now. Give us a five-star review if that's your kind of thing. We're on Twitter at AE Doubleback, on Instagram at AE underscore Doubleback. And now, Simon Grimm. Contra Unit is the most insane <laughs> bananas group. Uh, hugely we did, entertaining. We, we did get away with attempted murder. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I brought this up when we did it uh, that... Um, we dumped gasoline on Ray Horace. Uh, I think it was Jimmy Uta, and I think Jason Cade maybe was the third guy or uh, Myron Reed. And all I could think was, man, we just committed a felony in front of like 500 people and police officers. And I think MLW find us and was like, man, that is that is a you're not giving us any motivation to behave. Like you, we we attempted to commit like an actual serious felony. That that's. <laughs> Immolation is not a, a minor crime. You know, trying to burn someone alive is a pretty serious deal. But when it comes to street cred, <laughs> I mean, you've bought it and then some. That's <laughs> oh, close. Uh, it, it seems to play so well into Bloodsport. What I loved uh, in watching in Bloodsport is it's so obvious the the command of this, the art of wrestling, the actual the hardest part of wrestling, the sub holds, which then to make that last like 20 minutes or however long, it seems like forever. It looks like absolute excruciating uh, pain. And just, I, I don't know how you don't just give up from being completely exhausted. Um, if you've ever, it's honestly the, the weird thing that people don't understand about the wrestling aspect of wrestling because they'll always say there are people will say that you know the entertainment aspects the hard stuff the wrestling is easy there are people will say the wrestling is the hard stuff the entertainment's easy the reality is so anything you don't work on is hard the reason a lot of people struggle with the grappling aspect of professional wrestling is because they don't train for it they try to do the bare minimum to get through a match and they don't understand that if you focus and train on that style it is not necessarily easy, but it will be more natural to you. You'll be able to to slip into that mode a lot easier than if you were doing um, any sort of other uh, match type. Again, if you put someone whose only experience in fighting is, you know, brawling at the local high school parking lot after school against a UFC fighter, UFC fighter is going to kill him every time. Yeah. And it's not necessarily about size or strength or athleticism. It's about one of these guys just trained to do this and understands what they're doing. And one of these guys hasn't. And you're always going to I mean, I, I can, I will freely admit, I cannot draw to save my life. I cannot draw anything. I have terrible, I actually have a, a handwriting disorder. Um, but my brother, he can draw wonderfully, but you know why I can do that? Cause he practiced that. He, he actually put in the effort and he learned and he, he developed his skill set. So it's just like anything. You just have to develop the skill. So are you thinking about, like, at some point, trying to develop the drawing portion of your wrestling game? No. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, am, I am probably happier than anyone that there are no audiences at these shows. I have never been happier to wrestle. <laughs> As someone who's been watching wrestling for 30 years, I started watching wrestling, and, well, I've got more than that now. I don't like to think about it. Yeah, 35 years. I started watching wrestling when I was three. I, I will I will say hands down as a wrestling fan, wrestling fans are the worst. We are the worst <laughs> people on earth. We are terrible. I if you ever want to have fun, you can go on Twitter in any political thread, find the worst take someone has said, and there's a ninety five percent chance if you go to their their profile, huge wrestling fan. <laughs> it's the I don't know why. It's the weirdest thing, but it's like every time it'll be like this guy's saying, yeah, yeah, just burn everyone in Israel and Palestine. Fuck them all. 
and then you'll go to their page and they're wearing like a CM Punk shirt. <laughs> and you're like, I don't know that Punk would co-sign that. That's like in the least. I, I, I don't feel like he's on board with that. You know, I, I think it's any fan culture because like, I I love wrestling. Yeah, some of the fans are terrible. I love metal. I, I hate saying that because so many uh, metal fans are terrible. Or like uh, Rick and Morty, like, I like the show. I have to stop telling people that I like it because <laughs> the fan base is terrible. Well, <laughs> yeah. it's this, this is my logic. Whenever anything becomes your personality, that's the issue. When you're defining yourself by your fandom, when that's the thing that lo- makes you whole and how you explain who you are to people, mm-hmm. that's usually when that happens. I, I only ever give a little bit more, uh, I only put a little bit more pressure on wrestling fans because I have to deal with them as part of my job and I am one. And then the other aspect of it, and it's a kind of a weird one, wrestling fans genuinely believe they can behave poorly and then just pass it off as, oh, bro, I was giving you heat. It's okay. (laughs) You'll never see a Star Wars fan straight up call someone the N-word to their face because they didn't like Last Jedi. And I've absolutely seen wrestling fans do that recently, like within the last two years. (laughs) And then there's and there's their defenses. Bro, I was just giving him heat. He's a heel. I don't know if I don't know if kayfabe goes that way. Yes, you don't, there's no triple kayfabe. You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that that's. But so, again, that's the, it's this weird line where they believe that this, and that, that's why I joke. I'm like, I, no one, no one appreciates a no fan show more than me. And at least now, when I'm working one, it's intentional. It's not just so, because it didn't draw well. So what does your your experience of the, the show day become when it is like, and especially when it goes to such an extreme as Bloodsport, like where there were like two cameramen, there, the, the, there must have been single digits people in the room. Like, like what kind of experience? Yeah, is that? there's probably about a total of five people in the room between the, because uh, there's the hard, the hard cam is just static. It's not, there's not even anyone manning it. And then you have two floor cams and uh, the wrestlers and the ref. So about five people are in the room at any given point in time. Um, but it also allows you to focus a lot more, um, which is helpful because something anyone who's ever taken part in any sort of competitive fighting can tell you is that there is an aspect of wanting to sort of have tunnel vision on what you're doing. You want to focus 100% on the fight and on what's going on with your opponent, which is a definitely a... Uh, an added bonus of the no fan shows because you're not having your attention drawn any which direction. There's, there's nothing worse than the idea that you just, you just lost position or you just fell victim to some sort of uh, attack because you heard something out of the right side of your ear that went, wait, what? And it just caught your attention for that split. I almost died at the gym last week what? <laughs> um, on a box jump because I lost my focus for one second. Oh my God. One second. I and I had a bench behind the box, so I lost my focus. I don't even know what I thought about, but something popped in my head. Like, what am I going to do for dinner tonight? Just a split <laughs> second. Box kicked out from under me. Yeah, but the box Broccoli kicked out from under again. me. Right? <laughs> I hit the bridge of my nose on the uh, on the bench. Oh my god! <laughs> oh no! I was feeling in my hands for a second. I actually had to go to the chiropractor yesterday. He checked my neck. He's like, yeah, you're fine. But he could definitely feel where it was all knotted up. He's like, good thing you have a strong neck. Otherwise, you might have. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> wow. But, yeah, but And you think, you know, again, the similar thing can happen in any any match is that if you lose your focus for even a second, if you start to wonder about what you're going to have for dinner or if you left the stove on or <laughs> when was the last time you cleaned your wrestling shoe, like anything, you can – like that, you'll just wind up in a bad spot. It's the worst feeling in the world. So the environment actually limits that. It's really nice. Does it does it alter like uh, the cre- like creative decisions that might happen where you don't have an audience telling you what they're wanting to see, and therefore you have to you have to use your judgment? I'm I'm a big believer in have a game plan and stick to it. I, I think I personal opinion. I and this is just a fandom thing. I'm a big believer that if an audience member suggests something, anything, no matter how good the idea is, you can't do it. I, because the second you do that, you're telling them that their opinion is more important than the opinion of the people who are writing the show or the people who are the actors. Like any, anything like that, 
I feel like you have to kind of ignore your audience as many, as much as people say that's the opposite of what's true. The reason I take that stance is it starts to take the enjoyment out of it for them as well. They don't realize. I, I actually had a kid one time, this kid came with me, he was maybe 13, 14 years old. And he go, he tells me, yeah, I'm a really big fan of yours, but I think you should work faster paced matches. I think <laughs> you really need, and I'm just sitting there like nodding my head and listening to him and going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. didn't buy anything either. Oh, no. Oh, anything. no. Buy the shirt then. About 15 minutes telling me what he thinks I should do. <laughs> and all I'm thinking is, yeah, you know what? You tell that to, to freaking Eric Hammer or, or Cal Jack or somebody who's trying to throw me into a wall. <laughs> I should try going faster. And that would really like, no, dude, I, I've got my own headaches to deal with. I've got my own challenges. Do, do you like in a in the course of a, a, a match or an event, like feel like a like a similar call to try to neutralize somebody that that you're that you're getting interaction with? Like, does that does that does that happen? I did when I was younger, and I still do on occasion, but not as much anymore. Um, the last time I really did, I was actually wrestling Tom Lawler in Portland. Uh, I think it was Portland. Uh, may have been Seattle. I can't remember. It's Oregon or Seattle. Um, so someone yelled something. I don't know what it was. I don't know what this guy said, but I was in no mood for it. And I turned around, got in his face, and I yelled, I will fuck you so hard, you will call me daddy. <laughs> and he very quickly sat down and got quiet. Like he was not comfortable with that. <laughs> so there was. Why wouldn't he be? It's well, so inviting. Well, it was a very angry way of saying it. I think that was a real issue. It wasn't romantic or anything. I wasn't trying to charm him. I was clearly like this was this was a very prison reaction. Um, mind you, the be- that was not the best one of the night. The best one actually was backstage. Um, because uh, Chavo Guerrero and uh, Super Crazy were on later in the night. And earlier in the night were uh, TJP and Hoovy. Hoovinthood. And Hoovy starts getting Eddie Guerrero chance <laughs> on a show with Chavo because he's doing a lot of Eddie's moves. So across the locker room, I just hear Super Crazy yell, Chavo! Chavo! What the fuck, man? What the fuck? <laughs> and Chavo's just like, it's Hoobie. I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm not mad. I would have expected nothing less. <laughs> but yeah, no, some again, I, I when I was younger, I used to be really about like, if the, someone in the crowd is, I feel like they're taking away from the match, they're taking away the focus, all get in their face. But as I've gotten older, I've realized there's no winning that argument because yeah. you can only insult someone on their level. You can't insult someone on yours. So I could deliver the sickest burn in the world. If that guy doesn't respect me, he'll just keep yelling. That's yeah. A good point. So <laughs> I got to the point where I just, just ignore him, just ignore him, move on. Cause if they don't get any reaction for it sooner or later, they'll just shut up. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about, I'm, I'm excited to see, how wrestling is now starting to kind of mesh worlds. Like we're normally an AEW podcast. We cover that particular uh, promotion, but a lot of those wrestlers are now doing spots and other things, or they had in the past, um, you know, before they came over to AEW. And so they're just sort of marrying these worlds and bringing wrestling wrestling fans that normally wouldn't watch or know about some of this stuff. Um, How does that make you feel? Because honestly, it seems like such a rich environment to bring in way more talent, you know? Well, the issue with AEW, and this is just a general issue I think they had, they've gotten away from it. They've corrected it a lot more lately over the last like maybe six months to a year. They signed a bunch of what were basically main event guys. And they were trying to fill out a card with everyone having a main event match. Ah. If you, if you go back to like, look at early AEW, a lot of these matches that would have been very big money draws that people would have paid a lot of money to see Pentagon versus Kenny Omega. Yeah. Um, Jericho versus MJF. When, when, I'm not even sure. Like, I'm just throwing out names together. People I know. Um, but it was one of those deals where they burned through a lot of these matches because the company came together so quickly that they didn't really know how to structure a show to get the most out of it. Mm-hmm. 
So with time, and when they started doing dark, it helped a lot. They started bringing in people like Willie Hobbs, uh, yes. uh, Ricky Starks, uh, Brian Cage, people who could fill in these other roles, uh, mid-card stuff. I, I, their women's division suffered a lot because they were very heavily relying on the Japanese talent. And then when COVID hit, it was basically a year of half your roster is just not there. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I think they started finding that, – that's why they started hiring people uh, – obviously that were more local to Florida because it became apparent that they needed it. Yeah. They need bodies at the end of the day that you could, the first thing you need to run a wrestling show is live bodies. That's the most important <laughs> thing. Talent comes second because yeah, apparently, I got absolutely. the single most talented wrestler in the world, but if I've only got one person, they can't have a match by themselves. But apparently if contra unit is around some dead bodies might happen too. <laughs> <laughs> No, we, we just, we, you can never prove that. <laughs> We've never been connected. I, I, I do, I still want to know where Armada is. I demand to know that every taping. <laughs> because if you actually look, Contra is an acronym. And the last letter, the A, is, an, is Armada. And to the best of my knowledge, we've never had a boat. No boats. <laughs> I, I did joke. Wrestling was, Armada. <laughs> but it, uh, it's like the coalition, what is it? Uh, coalition something, something, something Armada. I think they just were trying to end with an A. My whole logic is still, I want it to be like Rod Torfelson's Armada featuring Herman Menderchuk from uh, Kids Hall. <laughs> so I want it to be like Joseph Samael's Armada featuring Jacob Fatu. <laughs> well, well, you, should, you definitely have to do the thing like they, they say maybe happened in ancient Rome where they like flooded the, 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 the amphitheater to have naval battles like in the Coliseum. Like, like yeah, like uh, do, do, do that with, uh, with uh, one, one of your arenas. <laughs> I honestly, the, the, at least one of them is run by the Russian mob, so I don't think we're going to be able to do that. <laughs> they were very specific. No blood on the floor. <laughs> they were very specific about that. And I was like, yeah, I'm sure you guys don't want the cops coming in here with probable cause. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> a nightclub owned by Russians. I wouldn't want them coming in either. Well, you know, you get you get ants. You don't want that. Oh, ants I can deal with. I can't deal with them finding friggin' Yuri's missing arm that's been under the couch for six months. That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> that's what that smell is. You know, Yuri it's knows what he did. He does. But that's <laughs> clean up after yourself. That's all they mean. That's all they want. <laughs> but like that's is like is that uh like uh like a like an interesting like newer thing of there being a lot of cross promotion like uh like like moves happening of, of people coming over for for an event or for a, a, a stint uh that's not really new um that was actually right early on that was very common with aew uh same thing with uh, AEW impact mlw um a couple of years ago maybe three years ago we're sharing a lot of talent there's a lot of the same people moving back and forth between um you had uh, MJF, who was all over all three uh, for a while. Uh, Sammy Callahan, um, Young Bucks, Pentagon, Pentagon, and Phoenix were everywhere. Um, I think they wrestled that new that last uh, Mania in New York. They wrestled. I think they wrestled something like fifteen shows in three days. Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that was it. Was pretty crazy. Like they were. They were, what was it? I think it was they were wrestling a show and they had to leave during the show to go to the next show because they had the match were so close together. But they were also getting $1,500 a show. So they probably walked out of there with like 45 grand. <laughs> did they bother to get a hotel room? Or they probably like- not. <laughs> oh, no. They're, they're, those guys are pirates, man. They will go nonstop. <laughs> like, it's impressive. I, 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 my, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like, yeah, man, give me a hotel room. Let me take a shower between matches. Let me be clean and have clean gear so I'm not, like, giving everyone, you know, eight oh, degrees gosh. of MERS or uh, star or not MERS. Uh, um, yeah, MERS. Staff. Yeah, MERS. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I, when I was young, I was a straight scumbag. I would do the whole, you know, wrestle, get changed, not even change your underwear or socks, like the same ones you wrestled in and showed up in. Just throw your pants on and then drive home. <laughs> maybe shower the next yeah no it was gross do you think maybe you were you were quicker to to confront like unruly people in the crowd because you were just so irritable from being all itchy i you i think in general i'm just i'm an irritable person i used to be a lot worse uh i actually um i i said at uh blood sport in uh with uh i think it was five or six i said it to nolan edward um because he's legitimately an orphan 
he he is from the 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 foster care system. I've been wondering about that. Yeah, that's not a joke. He he legitimately grew up in orphanages. Shit. Okay. But um, I joke he's the only one who's allowed to ask me questions in airports. Hmm. Now I say this because generally when I'm in an airport, if anyone says something to me, my response is, "Are you an orphan?" <laughs> and they usually look at me like I'm crazy for a second and I say, "Are you an orphan?" Yeah. yeah. Do you have parents? And they go, yes. And I say, did they ever tell you to not talk to strangers? <laughs> and I let that sit for a second and then I turn back to whatever I'm doing. <laughs> oh my God. And because I'm very, again, I'm very irritable in airports. I just, I, it's a stress thing. It's, I have to make a plane. I've missed planes before by minutes. I've missed planes by hours. I, I hate to do it. It's like, this is part of my job is being able to make a flight and get there on time. So it's always very stressful for me to be, even be anywhere near an airport. If you hear a story about me being a jerk, there's a 99% chance it was in an airport. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, a ball of nerves going to an airport. <laughs> Although when I make orphan jokes, it's when I'm extremely hyper. I remember once in class in high school, I said to the girl that sat in front of me, your mom told me you're adopted. Just as some stupid thing that my brother used to say to me all the time. And it just, I was really hyper. I don't know. And she's like, how do you know my mom? And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> she's really adopted. So that backfired. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's the, again, bring up kids in the hall. They did a whole bit about that where the uh, <laughs> Kevin McDonald, he, he, keeps, he keeps meeting his uh, wife's various coworkers and friends. And every time he's like, what, are you deaf? <laughs> and the guy's actually hearing impaired. <laughs> oh, what's the matter? Like, yeah, you. You got a what cat got your tongue? So like he's got the duct tape over his mouth. It turns out the guy has just been held hostage and he has a heart attack. <laughs> I know you, you mentioned in some other interview, kids in the hall, I was like, Oh, this guy must be a mega fan. And I don't know that much, but one, the one I re- can really think of is the one where everybody is like the regional nickname thing. Like the, oh, yeah, the Cincinnati kid, Cincinnati kid. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he's going to fight the Toronto kid. <laughs> and, and, and like, like it's the, it ends in the best way because like the Toronto the Toronto kid has a kid now he's the Toronto kid or whatever it is. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> who oh, yeah. who was uh, like when you first started wrestling? Who did you look up to, uh, and has that changed? I guess you know, like uh, to emulate because it um, feels like you're doing something different now than you used to. Well, it sort of, um, I wouldn't say I'm doing something different as much as I've distilled what I do now. Um, for perspective, I started wrestling in 2001. Um, I, I tend to have to explain to people that I'm a lot older than they realize I'm 38. I, I, uh, I started wrestling before YouTube and nine 11 had happened. <laughs> Both big. Legitimately, we had to, like, we canceled training because we had nine 11 happened and we came in the next day and it was one of those, okay, everyone. Okay. Anyone have anything they need to talk about? All right, well, fuck these guys up if we ever see them. Back to work. <laughs> That's all it was. It was pretty brief. Um, but at the time I started wrestling, uh, I had had a resurgence of interest over the last the, the few previous years. And I'd actually gotten really into ECW, and I, I was absolutely enamored with Sabu at the time. Because the guy was just a train wreck. Every time you saw him, it was like watching a live-action car crash. It was even people who didn't like wrestling, I would show them to and they'd be like, geez, this guy's insane. And that was where I was at when I started training. And as I started training, I started getting more into the technical aspect of wrestling. Um, people like uh, Keiji Muto, uh, Mitsuhara Misawa, um, a lot of Kobashi, Kawada, a lot of the Japanese guys. That became sort of the thing I was really into. And the more I got into it, the more I started using skills I had. I had a martial arts background, but it was just something I didn't really use in pro wrestling at, at first. But the more I started seeing these guys doing their stuff, the more I was like, well, maybe I could use this thing I know instead of just relying on the pro wrestling techniques I'm being taught. And I mean, someone even pointed out the, the flying arm bar I do that uh, or a couple of the arm bars I do actually the flying arm bar, as well as the uh, Oklahoma roll one, both those, my buddy of mine, he's like, dude, I remember you doing that stuff in 2008. And he hadn't, and then he sees me doing it on TV with WWE in like 2014, 2015. And people were asked, Oh, where do you learn that? And like he, he was doing it eight years ago. <laughs> <six> years ago. <laughs> Just no one ever saw it on TV. It's like, yeah, they, a lot of the time it was because you're getting so much. One of the problems with WWE is that you have so many people telling you what they think you should be doing that 
sometimes you're trying to please too many people and you're not thinking about what you want to do. So as I've gotten older and as I've gotten away from that system more and more, I've more distilled what I'm doing and what I like to do. A lot of that actually has to do with my master with Tom Lawler because he was the first guy I wrestled who really was allowed me to go full out. I didn't have to hold back. I didn't have to go half speed. I didn't have to, you know, don't do these holds because, you know, I want this guy to look good. You're, you're a lot of like, no, Tom is a professional fighter. Tom's going to make you work and you have to go out there and give your all with him or you're going to get eaten alive. Yeah, he and, seems like a uh, guy it's hard to overwhelm. <laughs> oh, you know, he you wouldn't think it either because he's so relaxed. Like he's the nicest guy in the world, but he's absolutely a beast. Like he, he's someone who he'll he'll go. I've seen this man lick beer off a floor in a bar. <laughs> oh boy, filthy Tom Lawler indeed. <laughs> oh, you know he earns the nickname. But uh, again, Tom brought a lot of that out of me, and I started realizing more and more of the stuff I knew. I mean, I even tell people when I they'll ask me who do you watch in pro wrestling now, and just to give an example of how how much how I moved on, like I watch guys like Minoru Suzuki, uh, Minoru Tanaka, Hideki Suzuki. Um, Masakatsu Funaki, like a lot of the guys who were in Pancrase uh, or Fujiwara Gumi or UWFI, because stylistically, that's the stuff I really enjoy. Um, but when I'm studying, I'll spend way more time watching, you know, Yoshiaki Fujiwara videos where he's teaching how to do the armbar properly, or I'm watching uh, uh, Yuka Miyamoto videos where he's showing you how you do a double wrist lock or Sakuraba and it, all these guys, all the, all the uh, catch wrestlers. Because I realized that's what pro wrestling was at its root. Mm-hmm. It was legitimate technique being demonstrated in a free form environment. Yeah. And I think a lot of that gets lost in the translation. Again, I went from where I was really into guys like Sabu, you know, these hardcore deathmatch guys flying all over the place to where I wanted to see the guys who I knew if you put them in any environment, they could go. Oh boy. Yeah. It's so it seems like it, like it's, it's such an insanely natural thing for you to have come to blood sport and to have come to someone like Josh uh, Barnett who, who talked about like, I hired these guys because I think they're good and I want them to do their thing. And, and, and it's this purity of, of the, the sport. Did Josh ever tell you why, you know, how he knew who I was at first? No. no. But he does say that it's really hard to find people t- that can do this style of wrestling. It, so. it is. It's one of the um, – someone actually asked when uh, we were promoting uh, 4 and 5 uh, why there were no women's matches. And I had to point out, I was like, well, Lindsay Snow is having knee surgery. Layla, Hirsch, and uh, uh, a couple other people, they had like impact and uh, AEW commitments. So I was like – and it's not necessarily – it's not easy to find – men who have these credentials it's also it's also equally if not more so difficult to find women who have the credentials and can and can work in that environment and there are there are some out there but again when it's so last minute because that event those two events actually came together very quickly i don't think people realize how quickly they were put together um but moreover uh when i was in wwe uh comment like i used to interact a lot more on twitter because it was just a way to build a following one of the questions i'd get a lot was who do you want to rest what's your dream match at wrestlemania and I'd say, I want to face Josh Barnett at WrestleMania. <laughs> and my and he'd never heard of me. And he started looking into me. And we talked a few times. And he realized I was actually cool. And that I wasn't just some putz that was you know, trying to pick a fight. I'm like, no. I, my thought is, get you a WrestleMania payday. I get, I might, am I going to get destroyed? Absolutely. But I'll get destroyed on WrestleMania with former UFC heavyweight champion Josh Barnett. Like that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's, the Floyd, that's the Floyd Mayweather Big Show fight all over again. So, yeah. <laughs> Am I winning? No, but I'm getting a huge payday and they're going to talk about it forever. So why not? Yeah. Why indeed. And then when uh, Bloodsport came together, when he uh, was, when I found out he was promoting it, I just messaged him and I was like, dude, I don't know if this is all you or if this is GCW, but I'm a hundred percent in on this. If you're, if you're, if you're willing to have me and he was, and thankfully I've been able to do uh, five events since then. So I'm very happy about that. Your events are some of my favorites out of uh, what we've seen, just from the technical aspect, almost the technical aspect alone. Because as someone like myself, I hadn't seen that type of wrestling before. You know, I'm used to TV wrestling and all the flourishes, not the actual insanity that is this grappling. I, I try to explain this again. One of the most interesting things you'll ever see is uh, Russian Sambo, which is a combination of judo, 
jujitsu uh, and catch wrestling that was developed post World War II in in Soviet in the Soviet Union. Oh. And these guys, they're like it's like someone took a gorilla, taught it three uh, wrestling moves, and unleashed it on another human on a human being. Like, it, these these guys are insane. And the number of throws and takedown submissions they can pull off out of nowhere. Um, if you're familiar with Volkan, who uh, took part in UWFI, the guy could leg lock you from anywhere. Hmm. He would come at you with the most ridiculous looking takedown and he would somehow leg lock you out of it. He, he, the guy is, and he's like 60 years old now. He can still do all this stuff. Mm. My God. But a lot, again, stylistically, it's, it's sometimes hard for people to understand because they really have to focus. And it's why if you actually watch the blood sport events when, when there was an audience, you'll notice the audience is actually quiet for a lot of time, not because they're bored, but because they're really like paying attention. They're like getting close, like counter to counter to counter to counter. And it's like, how the fuck did they counter that? Just the previous counter. (laughs) It's just like keeps going and building leverage. I just realized leverage the technique. Is that where the Japanese audience thing comes from? Cause like, I, I know that they're usually quiet during a match. I'm like, but like, didn't didn't uh, pro wrestling over there kind of start with um, a work shoot kind of stuff? Well, all pro wrestling at its core was what you have to remember is that professional wrestling at its core started as a sport. It was right. competitive sport, and then what you started having was initially it actually wasn't even worked; it was fixed. And the easiest way to have a legitimate looking fixed fight is I know how you're beating me, and you know how you're beating. Me. And that's it. And we'll do whatever we're going to do up until then. But when it's time to go home, you're beating me with that. And that's what we're doing. And then I know. <laughs> and not, Exactly. And then, but again, as that started developing more into the working aspect that a lot of guys started doing, you saw a lot of technique devolve and in some cases fall by the wayside altogether. But a lot of these guys have in Japan, they still have legitimate backgrounds. They still have the proper training. Yeah. And that's why the style is so much more appealing to me personally, um, because the physicality of the technique. In the same way, when you watch blood sport, you're seeing physicality and technique. And that's the yeah. big difference maker. Because anyone, at the end of the day, anyone can make you laugh if they're funny. But making you making you scared, making you yeah. worry for another human being's well-being, yes. is, it's a different type of skill. But with with, uh, with, with the, the the kinds of things that are so predominant in in blood sport, it's really the the visceral experience of watching submission work and of watching like um, not necessarily just in blood sport, but in various places like in Britain they do joint manipulation stuff a lot, and watching that is is kind of terrifying. Yeah, I I honestly thought it was real. And I was freaking out. <laughs> Again, <laughs> then, it's the level of violence. You first of all, the level of violence a human body can can take without crumbling is shocking. And is. we don't we're, we're not always aware of it, but things you can get very violent. Like a person can get beat pretty savagely before dying. My God, here's something else I've been curious about. With COVID and everything, like after it initially hit and everyone's freaking out, you know, wrestling picked up and sometimes it didn't even miss a beat. And I always worried about the wrestlers. Like, how do they, are they cool with this? Are they coming to terms with this? Do they, you know, I I don't know. Like, how do you put yourself? Well, I I will say. Uh, so a few things on this. First of all, at Bloodsport specifically, they had a great deal of precautions. Um, like I said, only five people were allowed in the room when they were filming. There was uh, on-site testing as soon as you got there. You, again, weren't allowed in the building until you were tested. You had to wear a mask anytime you weren't basically eating or drinking water actively. Okay. So they, they did all the, you know, had the hand sanitizer out, everything. So it was all, you know, taken care of. Yeah. Wrestling is my full-time job. The same way someone works at Walmart or Costco, the same way someone works in an office building. It's my full-time job. This is the only way I make a living. I have a mortgage. You can see my office in here. It's not very well kept. This is my office. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But for me, my thought was I have two choices. I can try and get a normal job right now, but the issue is going to be, number one, I have no real work history for almost eight years. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, about, I, I started working for WWE in 2013. I, my last real job was December 2012. So I've got to try and get somebody to hire a guy from California who's living in Florida, who has no work history for eight years, <clears throat> has no education beyond high school, has no references. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, if I wanted to work a real job, I'd be limited to what we've come to call essential labor, mm-hmm. which basically means I would be still at risk for lines. exposure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By being around. And in, I live in Florida, no less. So, <laughs> yeah. <Boy>. Right? <laughs> so my thought was I'm probably safer on a plane for two hours flying to an event and being in front of even an audience for 10, 15 minutes and being able to mask my and being able to wear a mask and being able to take care of myself than I am if I try and work a 40 hour a week job at a grocery store in Florida. Yeah, that's a very yeah. good point. I've got to say, I just yeah. appreciate I, 100% all the effort that it takes. And, you know, knowing you're possibly putting yourself out there at risk in any way at all, I do appreciate it. Cause like, it's kept us going all <laughs> year. <laughs> you know, like, I, this has been the highlight of our year. I mean, and again, it's, uh, as much as I'm glad that people enjoy it, there's a, I hate to say it at the end. It's my, it is my job. I don't, yeah. it, I don't get the, I don't get to have a say in that. I, 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 I threw away any hope of having a real job a long time ago. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I don't get, I get, I have to deal with it whether regardless if no one wanted to go to the show. I mean, a lot of people do get upset sometimes when they see shows running because they feel like it's they, and rightfully so that there are a lot of potential issues being raised by it with uh, COVID and again, we, I, we're all in the same, you know, we're all in the same situation, which is mm-hmm. you have to work. If the government isn't going to provide adequate assistance, which the previous administration made clear yeah. they were not going to do at all. Yeah. And this one's still kind of dangling like a carrot in front of a hungry donkey. Um, <laughs> $1,400 carrot. Yeah, it, it, one carrot. One carrot, yes. <laughs> I, it shows how disconnected people are from from real life when they're like, oh, $1,400, that'll last you for three months. God, <laughs> One mortgage payment for me. That, not, that won't even last even me a month. It's not even my rent. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. How, how, does, uh, how does the industry go forward after this? I feel like, for me, like even watching a, uh, a TV show or like a concert from, you know, 2015, like, oh, all those people, why are they so mm. close together? Oh, this is gross. Uh, does the does the industry change going forward as just as a result of this? Realistically, no. Um, there Obviously, there are certain things I think should be in place anyway. I do believe that you should have, anytime you book a venue, you need to have a shower on site. Just because I've seen yeah. how bad it's that. I mean, that's fucking not a thing. That, that was a thing. <laughs> you would be shocked. You could oh, even yeah. get one of those camping showers. WrestleMania, WrestleMania at, at a Camping World Stadium in Orlando, they had to bring in showers because they have none at the building. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's impossible. Now, we, we worked in a, uh, a rodeo in Texarkana, and that was the that building had a shower. <laughs> Bill well, did WrestleMania at Orlando did not. Well, cattle, cattle need to be kept clean. <laughs> oh, yeah. But... Uh, <laughs> And uh, I mean, Jimmy Rave, actually, I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. He was, uh, he used to wrestle for TNA as well, or for, well, they, they were TNA back then, as well as for Ring of Honor. He actually recently lost his arm to a staph infection. Uh, oh. Yeah. And yeah, no, it's rough. And it was one of those things where he got the staph infection. I don't even think it had anything to do with wrestling. I think it was actually just his normal job. Yeah. But you know, wrestlers were stupid. We're just like, oh, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And then he finally wanted to have me go to the hospital. And they were like, yeah, we have to take your arm. Fuck. Yeah. What a nightmare. It well, is. It- and, but for a lot of guys, it, it's weirdly, like I said, they, they don't have a shower at a venue, which to me seems like day one stuff. Have a shower available. The <laughs> yeah. people can shower after their match. So I've, they don't get I've, I would bring baby wipes with me to shows just in case. Yeah. Just wipe myself oh, down afterwards. That's a French shower. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness gracious. Well, it seems to me like uh, there are a lot, like a lot of uh, wrestling hotbeds in the world that are further along as far as these issues go than in the U.S. we have been. That like in places like uh, Japan 
and and elsewhere, they've kind of been through the experience of adapting to what a pandemic does. Well, because the Japanese tend to actually pay attention to the rules and the science. I mean, the people will point to America and say, oh, look, lockdowns don't work. It's like, yeah, they don't work if you don't listen to them. You don't, don't abide do that. by yeah. them. I was, uh, yeah. I was in, in cause I live in Orlando and I, I remember talking to a, uh, a clerk in the grocery store and they said there were people coming in three and four times in the, in a day because the same people, because they just wanted something to do. Yeah. I did a little bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> it, but, but that's, it, I actually, I was talking to Barnett about it, this completely unrelated, but I made the point about how you'll get a, uh, if you get a bottle of Advil of uh, ibuprofen, It'll tell you, I think, 1,200 is the maximum amount they want you to take in a day. Hmm. But a doctor will prescribe up to 2,400 milligrams a day. And my thought is, if I tell you the line is 2,400, you'll go over that. Hmm. And then you'll be in the bad place. But but if I tell you it's (laughs) 1,200, if you go over to 1,800, you still got some wiggle room. You're still safe. It's like telling your friend to meet you five minutes early because you know they're always five minutes late. (laughs) Exactly. And that, I think that's the issue with the, because uh, legitimately we could have probably knocked COVID out early if we had just done a hard three week lockdown where everyone like no grocery stores, nothing is open like emergency services. That's it. If you are a police fire uh, EMT, you're the only people working. Mm. That's it. And we could have probably gotten it down significantly in three weeks because in that three weeks, everyone who was going to get sick would know they were sick. Yeah. And everyone who was clear of those people would be able to, again, at least know if they've been around somebody or just not be around anyone. Yeah, it certainly seems it seemed that way. Yeah. Oh. Instead, we did the opposite and we're <laughs> parties. Uh, it seems like like no, there's not just a, like an overlap of wrestling and comedy, but of uh, wrestling and geekdom. Is there like have you had like yes. a, like a lot of genre? No cool person like wrestling. <laughs> no, no one cool likes pro wrestling. That's just a fact. <laughs> um, particularly generationally speaking, a lot of the people that survive um, the, I guess you'd call it wrestling's bar mitzvah, because around the time you turn 12 or 13, you either hate wrestling or you plunge headlong into it. Those are your choices. And I just feel like, did my audio drop out or? Nope. Oh, no, 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 I hear it. Yeah, yeah. It got quiet and I was like, oh, no, no. no. But, uh, I was actually I was... thinking about it because I was like, yeah. huh. Where was I on that part? No, I, I know, I know. I was thinking about like that very that very moment, probably about that time that I was watching the the wrestling that was on TV, and one of the factors that took me away for a long time was just dad making fun of me for watching wrestling. And I was like, ah, I don't like getting bullied by my dad. <laughs> for and that's what happens with a lot of people is that I'm, for me it was my older brother. We used to watch wrestling together. That was our thing. When he turned 12 or 13 and he stopped watching, I started. I stopped watching for a while, too. The thing that actually brought me back, interestingly enough, was Ken Shamrock. Hmm. Oh, God. Ready? <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> that was really funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but Shamrock was what brought me back to pro wrestling because I was a big UFC fan at the time. So when I started seeing him on Raw and uh, the Saturday Sunday shows, like the highlights, I was like, "Oh man, I got to start watching this stuff again." Well, that was a, a huge phenomenon. I'm sure that that uh, that that happened for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. it, it seems like at some point you'd you'd be afraid that you might forget like what what uh, what the one you're doing at the moment is and whether you should go away or not. Oh, I, I did a match with him uh, a few years ago. It was a three way tag. It was him and uh, Tom Lawler against me and Eddie Kingston, against uh, the besties in the world who are a tag team from the Midwest. My God. <laughs> I get it. Love to see that. <laughs> uh, it's for a company. It was, I, I can't remember what it was called. It was on, it was just like this event they did um, in Atlanta during the Super Bowl weekend. I don't know what the idea was, but it was a thing. And the best part of it was the besties were super excited and they have this big, like, hey, we've got this great idea, da-da-da-da-da. I'll do a backflip, and then you can catch me in the ankle lock. And Ken looks at him and just goes, yeah, I'm not going to remember all that. 
<laughs> so how about punch, punch, belly to belly, clothesline, ankle lock? <laughs> and you could see their hearts just drop. It was like they got told there was no Santa Claus and they were at the same time. When I was at Harley Race's uh, school for a few years, Bob Backlund actually came in and we did a workout with him. And Bob, at the time, was 63 years old. And he ran us through a bunch of push-ups, sit-ups, and squats out in the gravel in, like, a Missouri summer. Oh, my God. Not a whole lot of fun. But when we're doing squats, Bob did the – he's the only guy I've ever seen do this. He would count. But we get to, when you're counting in your head, it's like, you know it's if you so hear 51, yeah. you're going to 100. Mm. You know if you hear 101, you're probably doing 200. <laughs> like that's how you that's how you you quantify it you're like okay i know that's the next big number that's probably what we're doing bob counted like 133 <laughs> stop counting we're still squatting and then he starts over at one <laughs> uh, uh, psychologically breaking you down oh yeah and then he'd like he then he'd like he'd uh he'd get to like 37 or 38 and stop counting and he'd like come on guys i'm 63 years old you can't keep up with me <laughs> oh and then he'd start over again. And it wasn't like he was doing it for any real reason, it, but it was like we couldn't figure out. It was true muscle confusion. We did not know how many we were doing. Damn. I think we wound up doing something like 373 or some random amalgam of numbers. Lord. <laughs> oh, my. That would drive me out of my mind. Oh, yeah. No, not hearing a complete. Again, if you hear 300, you at least feel like you've accomplished something. If it keeps yeah. stopping randomly, <laughs> it's really me- it really messes with you. Yeah, how do your legs even move after that? <laughs> Is there a I've I've heard of like sort of a generational difference, and I feel like there's this thing where like a uh, um, there's a generation of wrestlers who were fans, uh, you know, as opposed to the old school kayfabe, you know, like a. a the Bob Backlands who are, you know, making you do all these squats. Like, is is there that uh, difference that you perceive, or is it um, just all kinds of people? So let, let, let me put a few things in perspective, okay? So my mom was born in 1950. Uh, she was born in New York. She was raised in Los Angeles. And she has memories as a child, five, six years old, stopping in front of whatever it was, Sears, Roebuck, or wherever they had the TVs in the window, and watching Gorgeous George on TV. Wow. Yeah. So the thing with that, with what you have to remember, is that when wrestling was huge on TV when it first started, it was one of the first nationally recognized programming programs that you saw. And that was the first generation of kids, though, that were growing up watching pro wrestling. Before that, everyone who's in the industry had been an amateur wrestler, had been a catch wrestler, had been a carnival wrestler. It was some form of that. When wrestling went on television, that was the first time you had people who were fans, active fans of a specific TV product wrestling that were, you know, because again, it was a lot of barnstorming. It was a lot of territories. This was the first time it was like, wow, I know who Gorgeous George is. That's a celebrity. He was the first athlete to make a million dollars. And that was in like 1950s dollars. Fuck. Yeah, like people don't realize he was wealthy. Not why he not died. At like 60. That's why he died at like here. fifty-five. You know. <laughs> but when you have that happen, you have that first generation of guys who all had a legitimate wrestling background and trained like athletes. Hmm. As archaic as it may have been, they were training like athletes. And then you have the next generation of guys coming in who grew up watching wrestling. Now the guys that are watching the wrestlers are watching the guys who grew up watching wrestling. And in many cases, they're just copying things they've seen on TV. Then the next generation coming in after that has been watching guys who've been watching guys who are watching wrestling. Then the generation after that's watching guys who are watching guys who are watching guys who are watching wrestling. (laughs) So it gets diluted more and more with time. And it's not so much necessarily a, a hard generational difference. Bob Backlund is a freak athlete. Um, yeah. where he went to college, I think he went to the university of Minnesota. They used to have three lifting stations. It was a bench press, a deadlift and a squat that were some, it was rebar cemented into the ground. And the whole idea was to see how hard you were willing to pull. 
most guys would work it. They wouldn't really pull that hard because they knew they weren't going to pull it. Bob pulled the deadlift out of the ground. No. <laughs> no way. Bob is a beast. I saw him at 63 years old deadlift a 200-pound man with one arm like he was nothing. Good. All right. Bob Backlund legitimately is a freak athlete by all accounts. That guy does not get tired. So Bob is very different. Uh, well, so what is um, what is the the blood sport experience like? Of uh, well, I guess like any any promotion you're at, you're going to have guys coming from a lot of different disciplines. Uh, but uh, maybe it's one where more guys are coming from MMA, or I don't know. What is that like? It varies person to person. Um, you have someone like uh, Cal Jack. Uh, uh, Cal actually, fun fact: his dad Dave. Um, actually holds victories over both Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and Dan Severn in amateur wrestling competition. <laughs> so his dad was a badass. Cal was born with a, with a club foot, was told he would never be an athlete, and his dad basically said, fuck that. <laughs> and he was a nationally ranked heavyweight for, uh, for uh, Oregon State. And Damn. so Cal's just a gor- He's basically a shaved gorilla. He, is, he looks <laughs> like a mountain man. He's got a perfectly broken nose. He has the most cauliflowered ears I've ever seen on a human being. Oh, wow. You have someone like Tom Lawler, who was, uh, uh, again, a little bit of an amateur background, but he also BJJ black belt, kickboxing, mm-hmm. fought in the UFC. You have someone like Royce Isaacs, who a lot of people don't know, um, actually has a, a amateur background and a catch background because he's trained with Barnett a bunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dickinson had a karate background. I have a Kempo background. Like A lot of the guys have different martial arts backgrounds. Um, guy like Jared Kratos, who, again, he does have some amateur background and some catch training, but he's also just a friggin' brawler. He's just a big, strong dude. God, yeah. Yeah, no, and again, a lot of the time in pro wrestling, these skills sort of fall to the wayside because a lot of guys don't focus on them. Mm-hmm. But blood sport gives a lot of people who are athletes. I mean, again, Cal, Cal is a legitimate athlete. That guy, I've tried to corral, I've tried to corral him before when he was in NXT, and you can't do it. He is... He will take off like a madman. <laughs> he tried to sleep in a stairway once, a garage oh, stairway. That's so wild yeah. to think that he's like uh, Teddy Roosevelt or something like that, right? Like somebody who, who like started out like infirm and just was like, but I'm just going to be strong. That's just all, right. the, all there is to it. Teddy, the first mixed martial artist in the U.S. <laughs> hey, he, he had an honorary black belt in, I think, uh, judo and jiu-jitsu. Did he? Oh, yeah. He actually That's had mats. So cool. He had uh, wrestling mats in the basement of the uh, of the uh, White House, and he would randomly challenge people. He once, uh, I think it was like the prime minister of Sweden. He just like completely threw hard just to amuse like the people that were there. Oh my God. Well, I think the, the question we have to ask ourselves is if uh, Abraham Lincoln, who was a confirmed wrestling champion, ever worked one. <laughs> oh no, he did. He wrestled bears. That's true. <laughs> that, yeah. Lincoln wrestled a bear and not the way that Log Cabin Lincoln say he did. So he did that too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, all, it's all fun wrestling. It is. By, because I got dinged for it by Josh after the fact, uh, I have to bring up uh, horror movies to you now. I know you're you're a you're a horror movie okay, evil dead guy, so I, I, I got to hear your thoughts there. Well, okay. So first of all, you know what my favorite movie I've just seen is? Oh, tell us. Willie's Wonderland. Oh, I don't think I heard of it. Okay. Um, Basically, it's a story. Uh, it's first of all, it's my personal opinion. I call it the Batshit Trilogy, <laughs> which is uh, Nicolas Cage has done three completely insane films in the last few years. He did Mandy, he did uh, The Color Out of Space, and Willie's Wonderland. Oh, oh shit! Okay, yeah, so, I, I, yeah. I saw Mandy, and I've, I have a Color Out of Space. I'm gonna watch. I'll have to watch all three of your your trilogy. So, so Mandy is basically a rape revenge film, but it's done by a high art director. Uh, Panos Cosmatos, his dad actually directed Cobra starring uh, Stallone. Oh my God. Um, yeah. yeah no, oh, I know movies. You want to talk movies, I know oh, movies. Shit. Cobra, not, not good movies. Not like, <laughs> I don't know about Titanic, but if you want to talk about the sort of stuff you'd see on USAF all night. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yes. So, Mandy, so the, this trilogy is also kind of like the three um, straight to video, grindhouse, B movies, whatever you want to call them. 
because you have the rape revenge film, but it's done by a higher art director. Hmm. You have a cosmic horror story based on an H.P. Lovecraft book directed by uh, Richard Stanley, who, if you don't know who that is, look him up. He was the original director for The Isle of Dr. Moreau. What? And he's a complete nut. Hmm. There's a great documentary about it. Like, he, this guy... Yeah, yeah. He, he got fired off the movie and decided to get hired as an extra, and he wandered around the set in full makeup, high on ecstasy. Kidding. <laughs> well, yeah. that's, that's, that's really the, the mature way to handle it. <laughs> well, so, Willie's Wonderland, I highly recommend looking up the trailer, but Nicolas Cage, he utters no dialogue in the film. He does not Ooh. speak. He plays a man who blows a tire driving through a small town, is not able to pay the bill because there's no ATM and there's no internet connection, so he doesn't have any cash. So he's got it. They're like, well, here's what we'll do. Go to this place called Willie's Wonderland, which is like a uh, Chuck E. Cheese type place. Clean it overnight, and this guy will cover the bill for your car. Oh, no. Problem is the robots in there are alive. and out Oh, kill- my God. <laughs> I will oh. tell you no more about this movie, but I will <laughs> say, just so you understand this, uh, Lloyd Kaufman, who's actually a friend of mine. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. Uh, my brother, uh, if you've ever been to San Diego Comic-Con uh, over the last, like, 10 years, my brother's one of the guys that runs the booth for trauma. Cool. Um, but uh, Lloyd Kaufman has a, has a, has a little part in his book, uh, Make Your Own Damn Movie, available now from all fine book retailers where he mentions that specifically Con Air is a terrible movie because there's no tension. Because at no point in the film do you believe that Nicolas Cage's characters can die. Right. You know no matter what happens, he's going to live. Yeah. Willie's Wonderland is the first movie I've watched in a long time where I was not sure. And I'm not going to spoil whether he lives or dies. I'll simply say I really wasn't sure which way it was going to go because they built the movie so well with everything they did with him and the other characters that when push comes to shove, there are more than a few moments where you're like, he could die right here <laughs> at 23 minutes <laughs> and they could have just gotten him in the trailer to get people in and it would not ruin the movie. It would still make perfect sense. Wow. Another one I'm a big fan of is summer of 84, which was made same people that did uh turbo kid. Oh, I, I like turbo, turbo kid. kid. Yeah. 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 I love turbo kid. So this movie is like a combination of the Goonies and Rear Window. Holy shit. So these kids get convinced that their neighbor, who's a cop, is killing people, uh, missing children in the, in the oh area. God. It's set in 1984, obviously, by, because of the title. And the film is relatively light for the first hour, <laughs> hour and 10 minutes. <laughs> the last 30 minutes is like someone grabbed you by the head bent you all the way back and just starts punching you in the sternum as hard as they can over and over. (laughs) It is tense, horrific, and it has the most disturbing villain monologue, like gut wrenching. Like to see this. Oh, no, it's a great. And again, you'll, you'll watch most of the movie and be like, Oh, this is fine. I, I remember that. Oh, I remember that sort of thing. And then you'll go, what the fuck? I don't know if you ever seen The Happiness of the Katakuris. I don't think so. He did a musical. The Kashi Mike, the the guy who did Audition and (laughs) and Ichi the Killer, uh, did a musical called Happiness of the Katakuris. He also did a children's film called uh, The Great Yokai War. Oh my! The the Danny the Danny Boyle of Japan. Oh, he did one. um, One of my favorites of his. It was an early film called The Way to Fight. And the opening is the biggest pro wrestling star in Japan is going to fight in a, in a Valley Tudo match, the biggest boxing star. Uh. And the whole, the rest of the movie is a flashback because apparently in high school, they were respectively the two biggest punks at their schools. <laughs> and the whole thing is that they wanted to fight each other. And they just, they just literally just keep missing each other. <laughs> and the climax of the film is supposed to be this. They're finally going to have this, this fight. All these people show up. And a big brawl breaks out in the audience, and they never get to touch. <laughs> oh, you know, the, end, so the actual end of the movie is them finally having their fight like 20 years later. <laughs> oh, God. oh, that's boy. hilarious. That's great. Oh, but there, there's one more I want to mention just because I love horror movies, and this is a good one yeah, to talk about. Of the Void. If I don't think I know that one either. Okay, so The Void is the only horror film I've seen in a God, I don't know how long. There are zero jump scares. 
Goodness. None. None. No jump scares. Suspense. Every time there's a scare, it's always done through suspense. It's like one of the early scenes, because it's set in the hospital, and uh, basically one of the early scenes, a cop goes to check in on somebody he brought in. And the nurse is standing there cutting her face with a scalpel repeatedly. <laughs> and she just keeps saying, this isn't my face. I don't, this isn't my face. They're pulling the skin off. <laughs> so this whole, and again, it's not like they, she turns around and you see the face. It's she, you see her doing it right away. Oh and God. it's the tension of he's trying to talk her down. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know. Yeah. But he knows this woman is hurting herself and she's going to come towards him with the blade and he has a choice to make. Oh my god! So, the, but the whole movie they rely no jump scares, all practical effects, and moreover, they actually also did uh, what was it? Um, they don't give you more information; they give the characters, which is something I really appreciate. I like that too. I hate, mm. Yeah, you f- you feel more invested because you feel like you understand their worry because they don't know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, but a lot of the a lot of the horror films now they they have to take you by the hand. And be like, oh, see, this is what's really going on. No, I want, I want that tension. I want that that not necessarily fear, but that unsure, that lack of reassurance. I don't know everything's going to be okay. I don't know everyone's going to survive. Yeah, a lot yeah. of people might die. Yeah, there's a lot of you know, like, and talk- that's the real horror is that experience. I mean, I would have personally enjoyed Endgame a lot more if it had ended the way I said, which is everyone gets destroyed. And when it looks like there's really no hope, one final portal opens and out drops Deadpool, not to fight, but to introduce Squirrel Girl, who proceeds to just murder <laughs> Fuck Bear. <laughs> Which yeah. is canon. She did that in the comics. <laughs> so that, but like that, I would I would have lost my mo- No one else would have cared. <laughs> but I would have been so comforted if they were like, you know what? They put Squirrel Girl in this on the download and told no one. And just had her be the ultimate Deus Ex Machina, just came out of nowhere and just ruled. Well, I think it would have been like it, it might have been a better thing to do to have the entire thing be turning on Thanos' desire to impress a girl. Because wouldn't yeah, that I mean, have... in the original comic, yeah, yeah. he was trying to impress death. And and Without... like like it seems like that would have uh like like given us the most useful message we could have right now. <laughs> Thanos, the and that would have also justified the uh, the Deadpool reference at the end with Squirrel Girl because Deadpool also is enamored with death. <laughs> so he bring, he if he if you have Thanos into into death, and then you have Deadpool basically being like, okay, I'm going to bring Squirrel Girl here to kick your ass, so I have I have death all to myself. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so we we shoot our own uh, uh, fan version Lloyd Kaufman directs. There we go. <laughs> only it's all legos (laughs) we also i will i know it's controversial right now but i will put in my four punishers scene yeah hell yeah this is i i'm i know it's controversial to use them now because people are terrible but i would love it if they could in that the the next spider-man movie i just want them to have to call in the four punishers Dolph lundgren thomas jane uh, yeah. whoever that was in Warzone uh, Ray Stevenson that's who it oh, was yeah. Yeah, yeah. and John Bernthal and just one scene where they just all four Punishers unleash on somebody you don't <laughs> do anything else just yeah. give me my four Punishers yeah it, should be, yeah, yeah it should be like one of those periodic Doctor Who reunions exactly no it's you into got, the Punisherverse they've already we already have precedent for it oh yeah, oh, yeah. I, I know I'm completely just running your time up like nobody's business. That's what I mean. Oh, no. We're more concerned about your time. Let me tell you time. a fun fact about me. Um, I really want to wrestle David uh, David Arquette. Oh. And let me ah. tell you why. I attended Santa Rosa High School in Santa Rosa, California. Okay. If you ever watch the credits for the movie Scream, the very last thing it says and is an absolutely no thanks to Santa Rosa City High School <laughs> and the Santa Rosa City School Board. <laughs> and the reason is my high school was the original set for Scream. Is that right? Really? And the, yeah, it was also is actually used in uh Peggy Sue Got Married, the uh Nicolas Cage yeah. and Catherine Turner movie. Oh wow, mm-hmm. that's cool. So at the last minute when the school board found out that it was a horror film, they pulled their support for it and they had to re- they had to find a different school to film at. That's crazy. So being petty, hmm. Wes Craven 
put that in the credits. <laughs> <laughs> and I maintain, I was when David Arquette started wrestling, I said, I'll, especially now they're apparently doing another Scream movie, give me versus Arquette for the right over that over that slight at my high school because I will absolutely <laughs> I don't care about my high school reunion. I care about nothing else, but let me do that. I was in school when that happened. Uh, 1996 to 2000. So that absolutely is on my watch. Uh, <laughs> so uh, will, will you be facing David Arquette in the Bloodsport? The, uh, the oh, if, if we, I could get him at Bloodsport in Tampa, I would do it in a heartbeat. I would absolutely, <laughs> for the honor of Santa Rosa High School. He can do it for the honor of Wes Craven. I'll say I'm mean, a John Carpenter guy anyway, so I don't care. I mean, I, if, if I know anything about David Arquette's pro wrestling, like whether it's smart or not, he'll do it. Yeah. Wrestling means really smart. I think most people will tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this has been so much fun. <laughs> Thank you yeah, so I, much for doing I, it. I make up for my technical difficulties by being <laughs> my, uh, <laughs> <my> props. <laughs> this has been uh, so great. You're such yeah. an incredible personality, a wonderful uh, person to chat with. And oh. we're so excited about all the different um, things that you are, have coming up, including. Yeah. Give us all your shit. What do you, what do you, oh, uh, um, well, you can, oh, what do I do or where am I at? Where, oh yeah. Where are you at? What do you do? Well, you can find me on uh, Twitter at devious journey. This is actually a wordplay joke because devious also means a long or roundabout way, which is how <laughs> yeah. I kind of look at my career. <laughs> I go the long and roundabout way. I never go direct. Um, and then I'm uh, still at got style WWE on Instagram because Instagram will not let you change your handle if you're yeah. if you're verified. It's true. So I'm, and yeah, I've I've tried for almost four years now, and they just won't. They even on their email, you can request it at tell you they probably won't see your email. That's not a good sign when they're admitting that. <laughs> um, I'm also at Pro Wrestling Tees, which uh, Pro Wrestling Tees slash Simon says uh, all my wonderful designs from various artists like uh, John David Guerra of uh, Nightmare Pro Wrestling. And Redneck Kung Fu, who's Australia's greatest son. Um, <laughs> she she is... No one's ever seen her face. A lot of people don't know she's a her. Because her name's Alex. So it's a lot of people just assume, your name's Alex and you like pro wrestling. You must be a guy. And she's yeah, like, yeah. Right. Well, maybe, maybe she's Sia. I, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I would not... If, if I found that out... She... she oh, yeah. She actually liked drawing my shirt because I had her do it, like, basically draw me as the cover for the movie Hands of Steel, which, if you've never seen, is brilliant. It's about cyborg arm wrestling in the future. <laughs> the future of 1997. <laughs> you know, it's, it's coming. It's on the list. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah, like, you've given, you've given us an awful lot of movies to watch. Can we look forward to seeing you in Bloodsport 6? Is that announced? Uh, I haven't been announced yet. I would imagine I'm on it, um, basically because I live in Orlando. So, I mean, I'm a, yeah, I'm a 90 right minute drive from Tampa. <laughs> I mean, anyone else they want to bring in, they've got to fly. Me, I'm I'm just there. So, it's, <laughs> never underestimate being frugal in pro wrestling. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I'm still, uh, I'm no longer contracted to MLW, but I still have a couple more episodes in the can that are, are looking to air. So anywhere you find MLW, uh, you should see me on there for a few more episodes. Nice. Um, I have not officially ceased working with them. Um, we're just, I'm no longer under contract. <laughs> Dude, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, so you've been, you've been wonderful. Been the best. <laughs> uh, good luck. We'll see you, hopefully, Bloodsport 6. That's nice. Salam Alaikum. Stay black. <laughs> <laughs> Go get them. <laughs>